This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Every day, there were new developments around efforts to get or impose a contract on the province's 55,000 education workers. But yesterday, the ed workers began an illegal strike. Illegal because of legislation passed on Thursday by the majority Ford PCs at Queen's Park. The Keeping Students in Class Act forces a contract on the education workers and bans any strike act action by using the Constitution's notwithstanding clause. It also implements steep fines against those who defy the act. On Tuesday, our recovering politicians panel joined me when I filled in for Libby and weighed in on developments to that point. It was the same day the Education Minister Stephen Lecce introduced the Ford government's controversial legislation. Howard Hampton is a former Ontario NDP leader. Lisa Raitt is a former federal deputy conservative leader. And Charles Souza is a former Ontario liberal finance minister. Well, the use of the notwithstanding clause is unprecedented. I mean, it's um, rarely obviously used, but depriving workers of some of their rights, uh, I think, is pretty severe. Um, certainly when, I mean, and Lisa Ray can attest to this, having been Minister of Labor herself when she was in federal side, and um, you know, negotiated agreement is the best agreement. And they're both, they're both being somewhat reckless, I have to say, and uh I, I do worry about the kids and the people going to school, and we have to be gentle because it's a very delicate balance, and it's being upset right now, um, both by QP in terms of some of what they're trying to do and bait the government, but also the government trying to use a big stick, which uh, is going to cause ramifications throughout the system. I like that description, reckless by both sides. Uh, Lisa, would you like to augment those comments? I agree with, I mean, Charles and I were actually, I think, Charles, we were. Were, you, were you labor minister? We were labor ministers together, actually, at one point in time. But uh, listen, I agree with Charles on this one. I think that it is in a situation where we're seeing the big cannons come out on on this um on this event, and the government is showing how far they'll go. But if I could add a little bit of a flavor, I didn't realize that Prime Minister Trudeau had weighed in, and I would just give him one message. But out. This is none of your concern. This is a provincial matter that notwithstanding clause, no matter how much you like it or don't like it, it was actually a precondition to getting the Constitution repatriated and the Charter coming into place. It's there for the purpose of being utilized. If you don't like it and you want to change the Constitution, well, good luck with that, buddy, because it's going to be a hard climb to have that done. But to have a justice minister look at ways to intervene, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked. If that's his talking point, I, he's got better things he should be focusing on today than this dispute in Ontario. Interesting. Howard Hampton, your initial thoughts on the developments? If this goes much wider than the current collective bargaining process between education workers and the government. This uh, literally strikes at some of the historic compromises that have been made 
between governments and the labor movement going back uh, over a half a century. Um, I mean, this is the equivalent, and I don't want to overstate this. This is the equivalent of saying, "Oh, we'll use it. We'll use a tactical nuclear bomb here," because what it says, and it says this not just to education workers, but to healthcare workers, uh, broader public sector workers, uh, large, and also to private sector unions. If we don't like, uh, you know, if, if we don't like you, we will drop the bomb on you. And so it, it's not just a it's not just a tactic that will speak to those education workers. It will speak to the larger education community, including the universities and the colleges. It, it, it's a threat to public sector workers generally, and to very progressive unions in the private sector, like the steel workers or UFCW or, or Unifor. It sends a message to them too: if we don't like you, we'll just wipe out your rights. So. Uh, this is a this is a huge escalation of something that really should be bargained, you know, at the table, and and that's what is really needed here is some bargaining. And and uh, you you heard you know Fred Hahn, who's you know the head of QP in Ontario, say, as a union we can't bargain with ourselves, and the government really hasn't bargained, nor have they been willing to sit down and and. Uh, Look at uh, you know issues like having this go to an arbitrator. They're simply saying uh, we're going to drop the bomb on you, and but, that yeah. that is that is uh, really fundamental to how working people in this not just in this province but in this country and probably in North America have tried to work with governments and with business over the last eighty years. Howard Hampton is a former Ontario NDP leader, Lisa Raitt, a former federal deputy conservative leader, and Charles Souza, a former Ontario liberal finance minister. That was our conversation from Tuesday, three days before education workers began their strike. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. With Vladimir Putin's Russian war in Ukraine now into a ninth month, the government of Canada is offering another way for Canadians to assist. At the Congress of Ukrainian Canadians in Winnipeg last weekend, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that the government will be issuing Ukraine sovereignty bonds. According to the Office of the Prime Minister, the equivalent proceeds from this five-year bond will be channeled directly to Ukraine through the International Monetary Fund's administered account. These bonds are said to build on the Government of Canada's $2 billion in financial assistance to Ukraine this year. Joining me on Monday to discuss, Peter Storin, President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto Branch, and Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor at Alan Small Financial Group. I don't think the program is fully announced as yet. I think the denominations uh, are still to be worked out. Obviously, the, the interest rate uh, hasn't been announced as yet as well. But I believe it's you know to give opportunity for those that want to continue to help uh, Ukrainians, uh, you know, and all that they're going through during the current uh, current war, uh, it's an opportunity for Canadians to to help, further help, and provide, I guess, money assistance to help things like uh, to keep their pension funds flowing, to keep their energy uh, turned on, 
basically to help the country survive during these very difficult times. And as you mentioned, uh, the money uh, will flow through the IMF. Uh, it's backed. It looks like it's going to be backed by the uh, government of Canada. So it should have a obviously a uh, uh, AAA rating uh, on these bonds. And um, you know, it depends on who you are. If you just want to help, it's a good idea to buy. And perhaps if the interest rate is is competitive enough, it could garner some attention from some of the investors uh, on on Bay Street wanting to to get a good interest rate. So, Alan, say uh, just in terms of your experience with other bonds like this, like even investing in the government of Canada, how does that work? Say you want to put $200 into a bond, there will be a lifetime for this bond that you will be paid a certain amount of interest, and that money will then be, how does that work? The government of Canada matches the money and they send it to Ukraine? So it looks like so so it looks like a five year bond from what I've read so far. I don't know if there's going to be a shorter term bond there, but from what I read, it looks like a five year bond. Uh, you put the money in, you'll earn interest uh, on an annual basis, and uh, after the five years is up, I'm going to uh, you'll get your money back that you've put in, and it looks like that that money will flow through the IMF and through the IMF to Ukraine. And uh, as I said, I think. When Canada um, has announced that they will be backing this bond, or it's a, a obviously then a AAA rated bond, it is something that you know it, it's pretty much guaranteed mm-hmm. that you will get your money back and interest earned over that period of time. So again, I think it's going to depend a lot on for those that want to help. It's a great way to help. You know, if you can uh, put in a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, you will earn interest on that money over time and be able to help with obviously for a, a good cause. And for those that, you know, want to put more money in as more of an investment, perhaps hold that in some sort of portfolio as an investment, if the interest rates are are good, uh, I think that is a possibility as well. Peter Storn, an innovative uh, idea at this point in the war? Uh, absolutely. It's actually the first time uh, the Canadian government has done this uh, for another country. And uh, we uh, we are very hopeful that other countries will uh, will take the example. It's a very simple way for the government to actually not to put out the capital. Yes, they will be putting out their guarantee on these bonds. Uh, the latest uh, press release I see it's basically going to be called um, uh, Government of Canada's uh, Ukraine Sovereignty Bond, right. um, carrying the full guarantee and. Meanwhile, they don't have to put out the capital, so you'll have hopefully uh, many Canadians of all uh, different backgrounds uh, wanting to support, and uh, our understanding the interest rate will be competitive, um, and it's just a very um, an excellent tool right now to, hit, to help a country that continues to be battered today. Again, 50, 50 missiles, um, uh, cruise missiles fired at Ukraine, strictly targeting infrastructure and civilian targets. Uh, we hear that uh, KU has been hit again, yeah. and they are currently without power, a city of over 2 million people. So Ukraine desperately needs any support they can get. Peter Sturin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch, and Alan Small, senior investment advisor at Alan Small Financial Group. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, news of an emergency care centre designed for older Ontario residents. We discuss next. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We received some promising news from the University Health Network in Toronto last weekend of the first senior emergency care center paid for with an historic $52 million donation. The money is coming from the John and Myrna Daniels Foundation, who've provided the largest gift toward emergency medicine in Canadian history. This emergency care center for seniors is to be housed at Toronto Western Hospital and will feature a comprehensive research and education program, staff specialized in geriatric care, and a physical space designed to work around the unique needs of seniors. While filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad for reaction. John Wright is the executive vice president at Maru Public Opinion. Bill Van Gorder is chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Well, I think it's got to be considered as good news um, because of two reasons. Number one, better treatment. And number two, by definition, a more efficient triaging or funneling, you know, of, of senior patients, senior people needing care uh, who don't have to, who won't have to uh, wait as long in the, in the you know, in the, as in the wider population. Uh, it begs some questions as to where it fits into the, to the health scheme overall. And uh, uh, is the province just going to gratefully accept it, which obviously nobody's uh, getting in the way of it, but how does it fit in? Uh, could it be a model for more centers? Uh, are they studying uh, the distribution of the seniors population to, uh, with a view to looking this at this as a kind of a guinea pig for maybe more of them that they could produce? So I think it's all very encouraging. Bill, David brings up a lot of good questions that we still really don't have answers to. But on the surface, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree with David that it certainly is a positive news to, to think that this amount of money is going to go into uh, having something that we should have had uh, years ago with the growth of the senior population and the need for specialization. Hopefully this will bring attention and highlight that again. We don't, we don't have enough uh, geriatric specialists uh, in the province and maybe this will make more uh, young doctors anxious to go into uh, uh, geriatrics. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, and it will be interesting to see if the government uh, support is wonderful that individuals will put $50 million towards something like this. But where is the government supporting it? And as David rightly says, this, will this really translate into something that's going to happen right across the province and across the country? John, what do you think about this? I think we are now starting to feel the direct impact of the growing and aging population. Nine years from now, I think I've said on this program, is going to be a real crunch time for the healthcare system and long-term care. This is a very encouraging sign, whether it's private or public sector or matched or comboed. It, it, to me, it establishes a bench, uh, a beachhead in Toronto and could become a model of care over the next number of years that we learn an awful lot from. So to echo everyone else, I hope that this is going to attract new doctors. Uh, it's going to attract 
you know, new ideas about how to serve the growing and older population. Because when you put all of this technology and all of these mindsets in one place to feed off of a huge healthcare network, I think we can't do anything other than benefit from it. And I'm looking forward to it moving forward. So this money that's coming from the John and Myrna Daniels Foundation, David, does it also highlight what isn't coming from Queen's Park and uh, make us question why? Well, I think it, it's easy to to say that because it's just so here is a sum of money that didn't exist. It was zero. And now it's something because of the uh, the, the Daniels Foundation, uh, their, their generosity and, and, and uh, on the so yes. But on the other hand, it isn't just a question of the money. Uh, the money is being spent in large gobs and gobs compared to other countries. Where are the outcomes and where is the strategy? So this is certainly welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to say yes, but I mean, you could just say yes and applaud and, and, and I think that's the appropriate reaction. But it doesn't change the fact that there are many hard questions we have to ask, uh, the governments of all provinces of, uh, where healthcare is going. And for the record, our audience, our CARP members were highly skeptical. Uh, that uh, governments can fix this mess. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion. And Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Tuesday, November 1st, marked the official beginning of the rollout of the flu shot in Ontario. You may get your flu shot from a doctor or nurse practitioner at a public health clinic and at participating pharmacies. And while you're at it, make sure you're up to date with your COVID vaccines. Joining me in studio to talk about this season's flu shot, our friend and pharmacist, John Papasturgio. You know, the best kind of idea we always have about how this flu season is going to go is based on what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere or what's already happened. So, you know, in Australia, they had a really, really high incidence of flu this year. And there was a number of reasons for that. But primarily, the last few years, we've been social distancing, wearing masks, you know, uh, being very, very careful. So we didn't really have much flu circulating. Right. And yeah, we've taken all that away. And we haven't really had any inherent immunity for the last few years because we haven't been exposed to much of it. And bam, you get like a a really bad flu season. And if if that's any indication of what's going to happen here, uh, uh, here, uh, we we should worry. And I think the point here is get vaccinated as early as possible. We're already starting to see some some flu circulating even in Ontario. Right. And people hospitalized for the flu. Absolutely. When in the last two winters that didn't happen because of masking and distancing and all those protocols we had in place. Uh, Absolutely. And I think um, you know, we opened up now to everyone. We did, we've been doing high risk patients for the last couple of weeks, but we're now, uh, you know, available to, to vaccinate anyone. And I always say that I'll wait till later. You know, patients say this all the time. Maybe I'll come in in a couple of weeks. Don't wait because it takes about two weeks for your body to kind of generate that immunity after you've been vaccinated. So it's not like you get the vaccine and you're protected immediately, right? There's some uh, time between that's required. So if you get vaccinated now, we're in November, you'd be like, you'd be in good shape for mid November, right? And that's when we expect to see kind of the the peak November, December, January. You see usually an onslaught of flu. 
since it has been a few years since flu uh, did its damage in Ontario and across the country. Remind us of what the flu is like if you catch it. Yeah, see, the the challenge is it's not much different than COVID, right? And it's hard to differentiate, especially in the early, early uh, stages. So you're going to get, you know, runny nose, sore throat, sore throat, fever, malaise, weakness. The flu is different in the, than the cold in the sense that, you know, it's going to knock you on your ass. You know, uh, you're going to be bedridden. You're not, you know, with the cold, you can kind of manage if you have the common cold. But the, the flu is a lot different for most people, particularly those that have been unvaccinated. You feel really, really crummy for kind of a week, sometimes two weeks, right? Um, when you think of COVID, early on, you can't really differentiate. Generally with COVID, if it progresses, you're going to get the shortness of breath. And you don't really have that with flu unless you have underlying comorbidities, things like asthma, COPD, you know, they, you could get that shortness of breath. But that's what I'm worried about this year. If we have both kind of circulating at the same time, it's going to be hard to differentiate who has one right. without the testing and everything else. Right. right? And, and of course, the difference with the flu versus COVID is that you can be asymptomatic with COVID, but you can't be asymptomatic with the flu. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. for sure. And, uh, and you know, so if we could vaccinate as many people against the flu and then get those boosters in for COVID, because we're doing that right now as well. And it's very safe to do both. And we're doing that. I've, I've got people coming in who are due for their COVID booster, uh, due for their flu shot. We're doing one in each arm, sending them on their way. And it's, it's very safe to do that. And we've done a ton of that already. And it's really uh, getting as many people vaccinated as early as possible. So that's really the solution, right, is the the two-dose shopping when you go in, uh, either for your flu shot or for your COVID bivalent, then get the other one at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we have, you know, Pfizer bivalent vaccine available now as well. It, came, it came, became available a little bit later than the Moderna vaccine. But the reality is, yeah, you could get both. It's safe to do it. I know with our, you know, our senior listening audience, they're, they're always very interested in the high dose flu vaccine. And we have supply right now. So get it now. Cause I always, you know, we wait, but we have our, some of our seniors patients, they wait, they wait, they wait. It eventually will run out, you know, and they'll say, I want the high dose. Well, we don't have it anymore. It's not the end of the world. We've got trivalent adjuvanted vaccine for seniors as well. And, and we use that as kind of a, the second option once we run out there, you know, the efficacy is not as great, but it's still very, very good. So if you go into a pharmacy and they say, we don't have high dose vaccine, I would say don't pass. Get the trivalent adjuvanted vaccine and get, you know, get vaccinated. It's more important to be vaccinated earlier than to wait and hope the vaccine becomes available. Friend and pharmacist, John Papasturgio. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Martha in Midland phoned on Halloween this past Monday to reflect on how she celebrated Halloween when she was a kid. I'm 82. We don't celebrate. I live in a, a modular home park and we're all seniors. Mm-hmm. So we don't get any kids. But 
when I was growing up, um, it wasn't like it is today. You went to the door and you hollered, shell out. They would come to the door and you'd have to go in and either sing a song, recite a poem, or do something before you could get candy. Wow. So you really had to work for your treats. Absolutely. It was just not anything for free. You had to earn it. <laughs> and it was, to me, it was a lot of fun. Jody in Toronto called about the conflict between the Ford PCs and Ontario's education workers. I think the education system needs the whole overhaul. Uh, first of all, I think it should be an essential service. It has a terrible impact on our children, both emotionally and development. Every time we go through this, every couple of years or whatever. Also, I think the whole thing has to be revamped where the jobs are like 9 to 5, like they teach from 9 to 3.30 and then they have an hour and a half to do their uh, grading papers, whatever it is they do and so on and so forth. And the jobs should be graded depending on the service that uh, the individual provides. For example, if it's just a teacher or if it's someone that's dealing with uh, children with uh, special needs, Mm -hmm. They all need to be graded differently. Ellen in Toronto also called about the education workers. Parents are tired of this. The kids have suffered. This is not fighting for the kids. Uh, I've worked in the private sector for years and years. And you get what you get and you don't get upset. And if you want more money, go and get a different job. Um, I'm glad that Lecce is standing up to them and I'm 100% behind him. PT in Woodbridge phoned in on this hot topic. Throughout the years, the teachers have really gotten what they wanted. I admire them. They do a good job. But after what we have gone through in the last three, four years, between the parents trying to teach children, between COVID, between inflation, I think they should ease off. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. Everybody wants to get as much as they can. And they keep saying it's for the students, it's for the kids. Reality, everybody is looking after themselves. You know what? Back off a little bit. Give a little and you'll receive a little. Do not use the children as hostages. They keep saying the children, the children. No, it's their own things that they want. Daryl in Toronto called in with some questions about the situation with the ed workers. Number one. What's the consequences for defying a notwithstanding order? And I'm not talking about fines or anything like that. I mean, this has never been to a court before to hold up or anything like that. Number two, do the feds not have access to a notwithstanding clause also? Which if a provincial government is basically stating that it's going to abuse the charter rights of the citizens, is it not the the feds? Uh, place to actually step in there too and use their notwithstanding clause if that's the case. Number three, um, is it not basically slave labor to force people to work without a contract? And number four, I think that the government is the one using the parents, especially after the, the uh, pandemic and everything like that, to try and, you know, play them when against the teachers when, you know, essentially you're talking about their concerns of daycare centers for their kids over six years old. George in Toronto called about what he sees as mixed messages from the Ford government. First of all, I want to remind you guys that the Ford government, before the start of the pandemic, wanted to get rid of and downsize teachers 
by starting the uh, online classes. And then pandemic hit and uh, no one liked uh, the online classes. Now, all of a sudden, they are championing the cause of uh, students going back to school. I, I, I don't mind going back to school for the kids. But, but and they're asking the federal government for more money, demanding more money. And yet they cannot pay the frontline workers, the education uh, lowest paid workers. Uh, they are not willing to pay $3.25 an hour, but yet they have the audacity to uh, uh, fine them $4,000. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph, who phoned about the plight of Ontario's education workers. I'm part of the system more or less because I drive a school bus, so I, I'm in contact with the um, teachers and with the education workers. And I can agree that the, um, the education workers, I guess, in the classroom, definitely, I believe they deserve a raise. Um, do they deserve 11.7? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think more in the line of a 3.5% raise is, is reasonable. The problem is with giving them the 11.7, it sets a dangerous precedent because then the teachers' unions are going to say, whoa, there it is. There's 11.7. That's our goal line, and it'll be the civil servants. Everybody's going to go and say, hey, the uh, workers all got 11.7. We're going to go for the same thing. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.